0: To briefly note, if I if I may, there we are. He said
1: said the line. Welcome to Thinking Deeply about Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Neil Almond. Hello again. And today, we're going to explore Key Stage 1 Reading Sats and what the future might hold following their removal at the end of this academic year. But first, Chris, what are you reading for?
0: What are you reading for? So this part, over the past couple of weeks, I have been rereading a book that, to my shame, I only kind of scan read when I first got it a couple of years back. And um, it's a book called Understanding and Teaching Primary English by James Clements and Matthew Tobin. Bit of a dream team when it comes to primary English there not just for the experience they've got in the classroom, but also the work they've done in initial teacher training. And I'm really glad that I gave it the time that it deserved. It is a superb blend of comprehensibility, accessibility, however you want to call it, and uh, nuance. I think the way that it explores the national curriculum, the way that it explores and condenses in a really sensible way the evidence makes it Just an ideal book for anyone new to the subject of primary English. I think if someone has just taken over English leadership, this would be one of a couple of books that I would uh, certainly recommend to them. It is, yeah, really, really good indeed. I think my favourite thing about it is the way that it situates reading, which is what I'm most interested in, in the broader understanding of literacy and even more broadly than that, primary English, including thinking about early years, um, and as I say, aspects of the national curriculum to consider. So highly recommended. And from my chats with them, they seem like thoroughly decent guys as well. So yeah, no reason not to recommend it. What about you, Neil? What are you reading for?
2: So I've gone down the the history route today, and I've gone for primary sources in history, breaking through the myths. It's a, a paper by a uh, Keith C. Barton, who is a teacher trainer over in the University of Cincinnati, and it's just a really nice paper for again, if you're a history lead new to that, and obviously there was a time, certainly say in my experience, where if you didn't have a, a primary source of some kind or some sort of source work happening in your classroom during a history lesson, then you know you would have been asked the question, are you actually doing any history? This is a really kind of useful subject knowledge enhancer, I think, for uh, our primary colleagues. He talks about a few myths, like such as you know, we can at primary also we go for quite some simplistic explanations, which obviously can be a detriment, perhaps, to our second colleagues. So the first myth that he talks about is that primary sources are more reliable than secondary sources, and he goes into really detailed, um, you know, as to why that may not be the case. Uh, the, another myth that he um, encounters is that historians are a sourcing heuristic to evaluate bias and reliability. And I know certainly from my like secondary colleagues on Twitter, they seem to be getting a lot of uh, you know kids coming up from primary who just seem to be able to go, yeah, this is bias, yeah, you know, it's not reliable because of, you know, real simplistic reasons that don't actually hold up to, uh, you know, the Historic method, shall we say? So, really, really nice, really accessible paper for anyone who wants to get to grips about what primary sources might look like in the classroom. What about you, Kieran? What are you reading for?
1: Nice. I mean, Lloyd Nine, the way back from research, at Cymru heard a really good example of when you can't necessarily trust primary sources because was this a? Uh, it was the podcast Fall of Civilizations, and. This this civilization had reported that they, when they went to war, they sent 18 million soldiers. And when the first soldiers arrived, the end of the line hadn't left their hometown. Well, well, guys, I'm not <laughs> sure you've been truthful with your numbers here. So yes. <laughs> Check, I'll, I'll put a link to that episode, because I can't remember, I don't want to butcher the name. No. Because I can't quite remember, because that was February, wasn't it? So, yeah. Um, yeah, so that's <laughs> remember that
0: yeah, I like
2: the one. I think you obviously was reading some like sort of like Viking literature, all about the great heathen army. And obviously, you know, primary sources will tell us that you know it was the great heathen army. Whereas I think you mentioned it was just like a couple of Vikings or like a stag do or something. Like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, well, what would he call them? Is it Thomas Williams? He says that the translation of the that where we get heathen army um, could potentially mean anywhere between thirty and. <laughs> Years 10,000, uh, depending <laughs> on the context in which it's used. So, uh yeah, the great heathen, heathen stag do is a yeah, uh, <laughs>
0: to be fair, anywhere between you know 30 and 10,000 people is a solid stag do. You're doing pretty well if you get those <laughs> kind of numbers.
1: I've been reading a paper, Chris. Did you ask me for some literature on curriculum design um, and sequencing in particular? And I went back to something that influenced my writing when I wrote Thinking Deeply About Primary Mathematics, and it was Curriculum Research, What We Know and Where We Need to Go, and it's by Dr. David Steiner. And I sent it to you, and I got hooked on it again and started reading again. I really like the way it's laid out. It's almost as if, if you've got questions about this area, here are the issues, and it, and it goes through them. And, and it's from 2017, so whether or not there's been updated research since then... But I find it a really enjoyable read. And if anyone's interested in sequencing maths curricula, uh, well worth checking out. So this week, we're going to focus our attention on Key Stage 1 reading and what the future might hold when SATs go. We've explored maths in a similar vein. I think lots to really draw out here because the two, while they share some features, are quite different. So I think it makes sense to start with, what did key stage one reading sats and moderation entail? And what was the impact?
2: Well, there were plenty of hoops for our colleagues to to jump through, mainly because, you know, there's, I'm not saying that the whole teacher assessment framework was uh, inherently terrible, far from it, but there were certainly some less than ideal ideas within that teaching assessment framework before you then get to the wider issues and problems regarding you know the whole moderation process and the whole sort of questionable reliability over the whole um, sort of thing so where it mainly came down to was that for children to be at the expected standards there was that kind of Expectation that in books that pupils can read fluently, that the pupil can answer question and make some inferences. And sort of, you know, from that, it was really a case of, you know, uh, the tail kind of wagging the dog in that sense of um, what that looked like in terms of practice, which was effectively, you know, your standard kind of comprehension ideas just for the sake of gathering evidence to the detriment of perhaps learning a bit of more code knowledge or by the time we're really kind of thinking about this, it's perhaps, you know, really kind of practicing, you know, fluency and making sure that what we know is you know, already fluent. And yeah, you know, so that we're reading that with accuracy, with automaticity and a bit of prosody and stuff like that, because that would be far more beneficial, I think, at this stage than before. And again, you know, some are born children as well. They never come off particularly well in this task because at that stage of the game, you know that potential 9 months difference between your oldest and youngest you know really does make a difference and so those children may need you know greater practice uh, you know decoding uh, compared to their older peers because of the age gap between them but you know we had to rush everyone you know through this arbitrary checkpoint which as i said um you know really uh, you know Caused some issues, I think, in terms of the practice that we were using in our reading
0: classrooms. Yeah, couldn't agree more. In effect, as Neil says, the process of gathering evidence often meant that the structure of reading lessons was designed in order to facilitate that gathering of evidence. And even if we worked on the assumption that what the national curriculum said about reading in year two, um, was a fair reflection of what reading is. I, I think, to some extent, it portrays reading as this skills-based construct that can be broken into a, a set number of skills that, or subskills, I should say. If even if you buy into that idea, which we, I obviously don't, you, you're still in the situation where you've got teachers saying, "Well, I'd love to teach this stuff." but i've got to spend time making sure that i've got four or five pieces of evidence in inverted commas that say billy can infer the emotions or feelings of characters within a narrative and from what i saw a lot of teachers doing they'd often have these fairly chunky folders where they'd then have on a piece of paper somewhere or perhaps even somewhere online they'd have written down on the you know 11th of december Billy inferred characters in this case by saying this and so you'd often see teachers in their reading lessons taking masses of notes trying to keep track of what's going on in this folder now if you're going to keep track of evidence to this level you can't it's much more difficult to do this if you're running say whole class reading and in the end evidence gathering as I said became the primary thing that was being done rather than focusing on the teaching of reading itself and obviously it's less than ideal when teachers are having to gather evidence even if you put aside the impact that it has on teaching and the actual classroom practice just the kind of burdensome side of things having to organize that is yeah pretty difficult to justify I think as well as that
2: um it's also the kind of the types of questions that would tend to be used. So again, because Key Stage 1 had the SATs, um, there were obviously like the content domains that varied ever so slightly based on the Key Stage 2 ones, but the kind of questions that teachers were asking or to gather this evidence were related to that kind of content domain framework, not necessarily the kind of questions you would perhaps need to ask or want to ask uh, to you know, ascertain and draw out meaning from the particular texts that you're reading and so I think there's a another issue again not only the fact that we're asking uh you know that we were asking uh, teachers to collect this evidence but also you know the type of evidence in terms of the answering the certain questions that um you, know, you would expect to see
0: so in short yeah it's wonderful that alongside key stage one sats the kind of moderation process um, is no longer statutory and presumably Local authorities, schools, et cetera, are going to make some pretty sensible decisions um, with regards to what happens next. It did lead to some absolutely absurd things. So, for example, I remember being in moderation meetings where we were talking about providing this kind of evidence. And on more than one occasion, we had moderators saying, well, can you bring out their past SATs papers? We can use that as, you know, their practice SATs. Can you bring those out as evidence that they've met certain standards that we can then tick off for these kids? Because you know we don't think you've necessarily got the evidence otherwise. Any situation where we're encouraging six and seven year olds, not only to do st- this kind of standardized assessment, but also to do lots of potential, lots of potential practice for this assessment has to be you know, questionable.
1: Why is year two so important in the teaching of reading? I.e. why is it so challenging to teach reading in year two?
0: It's obviously really difficult to teach reading in any year group um, in primary schools. From my experience, I think year two is the year group which provides arguably the greatest challenge. And the reason for that is because it's the point at which the differences between pupils are Not only extreme, they're still, in in many ways, they become more extreme as pupils get older. But you've got, you can often have a significant chunk of the class who are at the stage where they are struggling to read with any sense of fluency, while at the same time having a small section of the class who are already relatively fluent readers and have been for a while. And so it can feel like, like in some cases that you're trying to teach two or three different classes at once and the temptation of course with that is then to maybe try and break the class into groups or into chunks uh, which is not something that I generally advocate unless it's absolutely necessary so I think the real challenge behind it as I say is that this is the point at which you've got some relatively fluent readers and some that are still at the beginning stages and often those pupils who are right at the beginning stages aren't few enough that you can think you know what, we'll just run um, a supporting intervention for these pupils. Often it's enough of the class for you to think everyone's somehow got to be involved here. Uh, so yeah, that's one of the, the key difficulties. Um, I think it also coincides with the, in some cases, the, the, the like the latter stages of, of a phonics programme. In some cases, schools have kind of finished phonics as it were um, at the end of year one for them for at least the majority of their pupils and i think sometimes teachers aren't sure what to do in terms of the teaching of reading so it's like do we need to be doing things beyond the teaching of uh, phonics and what does that actually look like i'd say the last reason it's really challenging is you've often got a lot of pupils who have spent a couple of years working almost entirely when it comes to their decoding with decodable books and often the start of year two for a lot of these pupils is when that transition is made to these texts where they're encountering a higher percentage of words that include graphene phoneme correspondences that they've never seen before. So there's a variety of reasons why this is a particularly challenging time um, to teach pupils but for that reason I think it's also arguably you know the most like the most important bit of our uh, to get right beyond arguably the teaching of phonics that comes before that
2: probably doesn't work but you know if we consider fluency to be the be the bridge between like word recognition and comprehension sort of like year two is that real kind of bridge between just decoding and uh, say like um don't like the term decodables but decodable books to as chris mentioned then you know the more kind of year group appropriate books and so getting that balance you know is spot on um it's worth remembering uh throughout this conversation that obviously for children that didn't pass the phonics training check in year one they still be expected to do that in year two that's not leaving and uh that when you say just goes to chris's point earlier where he said that you know you you can have already by Age seven, quite a chasm of different varying ability or varying attainment, rather. Of uh, you know, what you need to do, you know, you will have a group of perhaps 10, 15, 20 percent of kids in that class who you do need to make sure you know get through that phonics assessment and that retake. And you will have 30 40 percent, maybe, who are ready to read independently and juggling all of that. And that kind of transition as to what that looks like from September, where. You know, after six weeks and um, uh, holiday, you might keep things as they were in year one with a bit of phonics and then kind of think about how you're gradually releasing um, you know, children from that uh, aspect of instruction to, to other areas. So, yeah, there's a lot of, whereas in obviously year three, year four, year five, year six, it's kind of all just, you know, we're going to explore some really interesting texts. In year one, it's going to be, we're going to, you know, learn how to decode some of these words and we're going to read some really interesting stories that use these words. Um, Yeah. Year two is just that real kind of bridge between those two elements of practice, which is why it's such a difficult transition to, to get right.
1: So it's almost got like its own inherent pressure because obviously it unlocks the rest of school. You know, you can learn through reading from this point forward. So it's, it's amazing that we actually added an extra additional number of layers uh, just for the the fun of it sam um, and in the name of accountability
2: yeah and just to go on that point as well kieran i was uh doing a, a webinar yesterday for some colleagues that also had uh someone from of- ofsted there and he just kind of you know a key message that i took out from that is you know by the end of key stage one these kids need to be ready by the end for the beginning of year three so that they can read to access what is the rest of the curriculum that's why I think it's really quite interesting that you know in the current framework it does mention quite explicitly you know broad and balanced curriculum absolutely but in key stage one if you think you've got some children that are at risk of uh, you know not succeeding in reading uh, you focus on the reading to make sure that that gets done so I think that's a really important little uh, bullet point within the uh, offset inspection framework for he stage one colleagues to know that you know we need to get the reading right and I probably do agree with the statement to be honest
1: how might we teach reading in year two and obviously this is going to have to be the the abridged version because I reckon I can ask you guys for like seven hours on how we might teach reading in general but yeah what do you reckon if with this release of pressure what are we free to do now
0: the short answer I think if you take one thing away from anything else I say, the rest of this episode is this. We need to find a way to provide pupils with practice of accurately decoding words and then relating them to their meaning individually and in concert. And that's obviously really challenging. Thinking about what we've just said, you've got s- some pupils who are right at the start of their journey to reading fluency and some that are, you know, well on their way. So. How do you go about that? I don't think there's a wrong way to do that. If a teacher said to me, "Look, I've got this setup here, and the way it works is that they say X, Y, and Z, and what it means is that every pupil in the in the class is doing quite a lot of decoding across the week, and obviously, you know, making meaning from that as well." I'm happy. It doesn't matter how you do it. Then great. The question then becomes: Okay, what do I think works in practice? What's a sensible way to try and achieve this. I've tried a number of things. Um, One thing I definitely don't think works for me is where you have pupils divided into relatively small groups, unless you're fortunate enough to have a lot of adults in the classroom. Because then you can just have lots of small reading lessons, lots of pupils doing decoding, uh, doing reading, making meaning, and getting feedback on their decoding, because that's the key thing. You've got so many kids in the class, you can't just put texts in front of them. They read without some kind of feedback, without some kind of mechanism for them to know where they've made mistakes, whether they're, when they're accurately decoding. So on the assumption it is just you in the classroom and perhaps one other adult, if you're fortunate enough, you need to find a way to get as much of the advantages of one-to-one reading into a whole class setting. I tend to advocate something akin to um, repeated reading as a key part of your, the way you teach reading across the week. Now that can be a, you know, a whole lesson where you do repeated reading with a text, where you model it a couple of times where pupils do repeated reading in mixed attainment pairs. And then they, there's some kind of performance and discussion of that carefully chosen text. And maybe you do that two or three times a week or And I don't think there's any evidence to suggest that this is a worse way of doing things necessarily. You could have a text that you read a number of times across a week. So you could have the first 10 minutes of every reading session could be returning to this text so that a pupil hears it modelled a number of times, practices it to a level of fluency a number of times. And then there are other aspects to your reading lesson that perhaps involve you um, reading to students Um, while they kind of follow on a visualizer or just listen to what you say in order to tackle these other aspects of reading relating to language comprehension in short the two priorities are fluency development through lots of accurate decoding and if you can find a way to do that then you really should and finding ways to expose pupils to lots and lots of text alongside that now that might you be involve you reading aloud and kind of kind of in bits and pieces analyzing stories and other texts with pupils alongside this fluency stuff. Um, and it might also, of course, involve the, you know, the wonderful stories and books that you read um for 10, 15, 20 minutes a day, whatever it is, uh, as part of your curriculum too. So yeah, those would be the key things. Lots of act- find a way to do lots of accurate decoding and to expose pupils to to a breadth of uh, text alongside that.
2: Obviously echo exactly what um Chris has said, obviously, um, you know, some parts will be cohort, depending, you may need, you those know, certainly after, say, the summer holiday, and depending on the cohort, you might want to keep things more in terms of how you would teach phonics, if that's what the cohort needed, and um, evidently, you know, after, you know, again, if you know that your cohort isn't one that probably did much reading practice over the six-week holiday, then that, going back a couple of units for whatever your um, phonics programme is for what the end of year one said is probably not a bad idea. And obviously, you know, be responsive to that. If all the kids are showing that they're doing perfectly well, then move on. If they're showing that she needs to go a bit further back, then obviously go a little bit further back. You have that. There's certainly enough time and flexibility, I think, within the curriculum to make sure that uh, children are getting that, if that's what they need. I'd th- say um, the the language comprehension side of it, I think, for me, is key here, and that, it's that understanding that pretty much every interaction that you have with a child is somehow going to improve their language comprehension, um, and that should have, you know, obviously uh, impact the uh, reading comprehension of pupils as well. So, you know, important things, making sure that you know you're if you're starting to obviously do less sort of formalized phonics, then obviously, you know, pick up, um, you know, some spellings. So kind of really kind of make sure, can you really make sure that, you know, if you've identified a few gaps within that phonic knowledge that pupils may have, instead of continuing phonics, do the repeated readings like Chris said, and perhaps you can then pick up a few of these things, you know, within the, the spelling sessions that you may do. So they kind of really pick up the uh, the association between phonics and spelling as well. Absolutely lots of repeated oral reading. Absolutely, yeah, as much reading to the pupils as you can within any subject and I say any kind of spare moment that you have. And again, you kind of then want to obviously think about maybe towards the end of year two, am um, I at the point where perhaps if all the children are at a certain uh, stage, uh, you know, perhaps we can start working on a bit of you know, reading stamina. So, can we get them to read perhaps, you know, some? age-appropriate books for maybe you know two or three minutes whole class by themselves to kind of start getting that you know independence idea going up
0: Neil's absolutely right to point out the importance of spoken language development across the curriculum the the um the well of knowledge that we have relating to language uh, it will obviously apply to what we find in texts there are differences between the language we find in texts and the language that, that we use in speaking but there's such a degree of overlap that one will absolutely contribute to the other Neil was absolutely bang on about this importance still of spelling slash phonics often I've seen schools that describe it as the phonics at this stage because that's how they're teaching it. they're trying to emphasize the idea and correctly so that there's still a key element of phonics within spelling and it might be the case that the phonics program within your school runs through year two and if it does for everyone that's not a bad thing certainly there's no reason why a phonics program needs to stop just because pupils are at the stage where they are able to um de- decode uh relatively well so that they can start to independently read because of the contributions that it can still make to um, spelling as well as to decoding as long as of course we start to integrate other aspects of spelling instruction in there. I think this is a good time to start thinking about morphology, if not year two, then perhaps into year three. I would say, of course, as well, if you have the resources and it would be great if every school did those readers that are struggling most who are perhaps being supported in phonics interventions, one-to-one reading that nothing really comes close to what you how you can to support a child than one-to-one reading and small group interventions for phonics they are you know they're the gold standard of what we can do and the whole class instruction that i'm describing before to some extent is trying to get as close as possible to the advantages of one-to-one reading with someone who's trained to do it so if you've got people in your school who are really good at reading one-to-one with pupils and they're available then yeah prioritize those pupils who are struggling to read. When I talked about uh, repeated oral reading, one of the most common questions I get is, well, how about echo reading? What about oral reading? I don't see those as necessarily problematic, and I certainly don't see them as somehow r- running against uh, repeated oral reading. What I see them most usefully as is a scaffold for repeated oral reading. If we assume that a big part of the active ingredient in things like repeated oral reading is the accurate decoding practice that pupils do, the orthographic learning that that entails, then part of modelling that, part of helping pupils to get kind of feedback on the decoding that they're about to do, can be done through some echo reading where the teacher reads a sentence or two and then the pupils repeat, or through choral reading where everyone is reading together, perhaps with the pupils slightly behind uh, the teacher. So nothing wrong with echo reading and choral reading as long as I think that they are a way to support pupils to access that active ingredient here, which is active, sorry, is accurate decoding.
1: How might we assess reading in year two? Honestly,
2: at this point, what I would want my school to kind of think about would just be code and fluency. If there are still kids who are really struggling on the phonics side of it, I want to know bits of the code, like if there are any like massive sort of generalizable gaps of code that knowledge that they're missing um a common one might be perhaps you know really struggling with like split e spellings for um, uh, vowel sounds and fluency so i'd be going to uh my friend uh hasbrook and tyndall and their you know their fluency norms as a rough guide to give me an idea of you know what kind of fluency words correct per minute am i looking at and you might use something like dibbles to Dibbles or dibbles to, to help you out with that um i think it's Diane McGinness that says in uh, early reading instruction as well as it's what it's a really kind of small little footnote in the taf that says this idea about 90 words correct per minute is a, a useful indicator Uh, for when children can kind of start when they're reading with sufficient fluency that they can actually start understanding so I would just want to know here's an age-appropriate book that I think year two should be able to read by the time obviously by you know summer term are they reading that towards 90 words correct per minute and you might throw a few simplistic um questions within that as well just to kind of get an idea to see are they taking any of it in Um, But I wouldn't necessarily be too worried about the responses. I'd be more interested at this point uh, at children's fluency.
0: Fundamentally, the most important form of assessment at this age is hearing pupils read. And as Neil says, if you can quantify that through words correct per minute to some extent and maybe some basic idea of prosody, then that's a really good thing to do. Worth noting at this point that there are going to be a lot of pupils who aren't reading with you know, the kind of prosody that we would expect of adults. It's more about kind of, is that starting to, you know, is that starting to surface when I talk about um, reading, it's also worth noting that there are other like adjacent assessments or adjacent aspects that are worth thinking about. So I would be interested as a teacher in the pupils spoken language development and where there were, where there appeared to be difficulties with that making sure that, you know, you are asking for the support from the SENCO because so often issues that are related to reading can be linked to issues that are related to spoken language. And, of course, the earlier that pupils can get support with that sort of thing, the uh, more effective that support tends to be. But, yeah, the, the fundamentally, you, I'm with Neil. You're looking at code knowledge and um, and fluency Um, And it it might well be the case that you recognize from hearing pupils read aloud, from where they're at with their fluency, whether you do need to do another, you know, phonics assessment. It might be the case that pupils have done pretty well on the phonics screening check. They, you know, scrape through with 32. You think, you know, they're doing okay. You then hear them read. You do that fluency assessment. You think, well, hang on a minute. That was done. that, that, That phonics assessment was done at the end of year one they're not quite where i'd expect them to be in fact they're you know significantly behind let's use the phonics assessment that is attached to our you know our school's phonics program just to get a sense of you know are there issues here does this pupil need that kind of intervention or is actually their code knowledge and their blending and their the coding of polysyllabic words is that actually okay but it's still mainly primarily a fluency issue so yeah in short fluency assessments and where required um, decoding assessments, i.e. phonics assessments, and keeping an eye out for any particular issues related to spoken language development.
1: I've just had a brainwave, because obviously there will be kids who come into your class able to read. Well, how do we make sure they're appropriately challenged? Well, you know, in maths, we change the base, and we talk about changing the base instead of, well, what if we change the base language? And so their LO was, I can apply my knowledge of reading to mm-hmm. French. And then if you want to really challenge them, give them a logarithmic um, language or that one that's presented from right to left. As I mean, do you think this, this is something I could market?
2: I'm wondering as well, Chris, it might be worth taking a bit of like a temperature check just to see how kids actually feel about reading. Like, are they enjoying reading? Do they actually, you know, engage with a lot of reading kind of outside of school? And just, you know, a couple of conversations. What are you reading? So you might want to think about taking some sort of sample of the class. now. Um, The the pessimist tells me that they will, the ones that have really high reading fluency are probably the ones that enjoy reading more, but I think it's something that's still kind of worth investigating so you can think about that reading culture for when you get into, you know, year three. You know, we want to make, it's all fine and good being able, you know, teaching kids to read, but, you know, part of our job is to make sure that, you know, reading is a choice that they want to make, so... I think a little temperature check on that at the end of year two could be quite an interesting little bit of data to, to have. I don't know what you think about that, Chris. Oh,
0: I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think that's something when we're thinking about these kind of more informal sides of assessment, I think absolutely. Kind of keeping an eye on um, their attitudes to reading. And I think in some ways that kind of assessment, yes, there are stuff you can do in schools. um, But a big, a really useful part of that is the conversation that you have with parents and carers uh, in parents' evenings towards the end of the year because you can find out, you know, you might have a pupil who seems relatively enthusiastic about books at school, but then when it's, it comes to the home environment, it isn't the case. And so you want to be able to do things to support in terms of recommending books, in terms of maybe trying to engage them a little bit more in the whole class reading that you do, et cetera. Um, yeah, there, there are. one of the things I would say is that if you've got a pupil who is really not keen on reading, more often than not, it's because they struggle with it. Um, Particularly at this age, I think, because pupils are so young and there are so many of them who are still struggling with it, for whom it's still quite a laborious thing to have to do the decoding themselves, that lots of them who are still not really keen on it are just, well, it's understandable. And I wouldn't necessarily want to then say, oh, you know, we need need to push something on them to get them to love reading when actually it's at that stage where it's still quite tricky. It might still be laborious. Um, That said, one of the bits of advice I do like to give to parents and carers is if they're, you know, their child's struggling with reading a little bit, it's still kind of quite a difficult thing to get to read books at home, taking turns. Um, both in the one-to-one reading you do in school, but with the reading you do at home, it can be a fantastic thing to do. It can be sentence by sentence, page by page, and even if you know you're reading with your child for ten minutes, it might even be that you know as you get to the last two or three minutes and their stamina is starting to flag, that you say, "Would you like me to take over?" And you just you know do the the reading at the end of that uh, at the end of that kind of reading session, and you kind of take charge of it. Nothing wrong with that um, as a way of kind of gradually building motivation as well, I think.
1: The only thing really worth considering in addition to this is then whether or not the teaching and assessment of reading change as we move into key stage two. Because obviously key stage one's quite small and you've got two quite distinct phases of that phase, need a better word. How does
0: this look as it evolves through qcs2 and beyond i think a lot of it stays the same i think it's still incredibly important for pupils to do lots of accurate decoding and so things like fluency practice might will likely still have value but the extent to which that fluency practice or repeated oral reading they tend to be used synonymously the the extent to which that you know exists in your reading timetable might decrease As time moves on, depending on the class, if you've got a year six class really struggling with fluency, you might maintain it to that similar level. Equally, you might have a year four class where you're surprised that there are very few people, very few pupils who are reading below, say, 120 words correct per minute with prosody. And you might might say, you know what, we're going to ease off on the fluency practice and build in more of the other kinds of reading. I would say that you want to have deep discussions about books and other texts with pupils all the time throughout primary education. I would say that as you progress through into key stage two and into upper key stage two in particular, the, the nature of those reading discussions changes, the extent to which you can start to bounce ideas around the room, the extent to which pupils are able to negotiate different ideas that they and their peers have, um, develops. And so I think what is sometimes described as close reading can start to take have more precedence in um, key stage two. And I think like the level of discussions that you that take place changes as well. In terms of how assessment changes, I do think that there is some value in comprehension assessments. They give a kind of holistic View a little taste of lots of different elements of reading together. And I think to some extent you can start to get a feel for those relatively rare pupils whose decoding is pretty fluent, but whose comprehension lags behind where you would expect it to be based on that fluency. These are often pupils who need a nudge towards uh, active uh, comprehension. They need a nudge towards this idea that they there's sometimes ambiguities in a text and they need to do a bit of detective work it might be that there are other reasons behind that it might be vocabulary issues etc but often you find that it relates to um dispositions and attitudes towards reading that have been unintentionally inculcated over the years where they think oh i just need to say the right words and it'll be fine and so if you there is some value in a comprehension assessment that can um, separate out fluency and these other aspects of reading to some extent. But yeah, that, in terms of assessment, that's probably the only thing I would certainly start to introduce. If a school said to me, we don't really bother with comprehension assessments because of how confident we are in our teachers' assessment of pupils' spoken language capabilities, what they say based on the discussions of books that they have with pupils, I wouldn't say that that was necessarily... A terrible idea. I tend to advocate some kind of comprehension assessment. Mm-hmm. Equally, if a school said we start comprehension assessments in year two, if you're using them sensibly, again, I don't think that's necessarily towards the end of year two in particular. You know, the worst, the worst idea in the world. But generally, um, I I tend to suggest that. They start to make most sense as we enter into key stage two.
2: If you want to, you could look at perhaps some sort of adaptive reading tests. If you wanted to get some sort of standardised idea of where your cohort are uh, compared to a sort of a national average, if you had some concerns, so or that might just be part of your everyday practice anyway. So something from like the NFA, NFER or something like that, you might want to look at doing. Um, I think I've read something. I again, you don't want to do that. I think the the, the confidence weighting of those scores tends to be around six months either way. So don't use it. You know it's only a, a once a year job. Don't try and do that. You know, every kind of term because you're certainly going to not get much bang for your buck in that sense of progress or anything like that. Definitely agree with Chris. You know, you want to get kids to see. You know, you want to assess some form of comprehension, whatever that might look like. Uh I'm, you know, really happy with you know key stage two SATS being used, perhaps, you know, from like year f- five onwards, if they wanted to, uh, for, for one thing, it kind of just gets them to the idea of um, gets the kids used to the idea of the layout, the kind of question types that you're then expecting to answer, and all those kind of little things that can, you know, support pupils um support pupils kind of exam skills or you know if that's what you want to kind of call it um certainly and i don't i hope this has kind of come across but i'll just say it explicitly i'm sure chris and i we're, we're definitely i'm certainly not advocating that you know you don't need to do any of this kind of comprehension stuff before year six is see that paper <laughs> um that we are sure we wouldn't uh say that that's what you should be doing i say there is merit in making sure that kids are familiar with that structure Uh, the kind of question types that do turn up so do they know where to put one two three four five and again you do want to put some of those questions might start to uh, be used in kind of your practice I wouldn't say want to say it's a day-to-day thing but you know a couple of times a week you might drop in a few of those kind of question styles I know our kids find um uh, you know structuring sequencing events really difficult and all of the sats papers that we did last year you know that's the one that they you know, really did find difficult so purely because they just don't think they're used to the way that those questions look like so you know, there are those kind of things that are practicable but certainly not to the extent you know that's currently happening now where you know it's year three and that's kind of you know the whole diet so yeah Keeping an eye on fluency as well as the text structures, as you know, the year, the books that aim for year groups, the syntax gets a little bit more difficult. The, you know, you're going to introduce more kind of non-fiction as well in there. All of those things can produce a bit of a hit on children's fluency. Um, so you definitely want to make sure that you're still kind of looking at fluency. We continuously measure children's fluency throughout their schooling. Um, I think it's a nice way for all of us to actually. Uh, you know have that time to, to as leaders to listen to the kids read as we do that as well so we kind of use that as a moment for you know that's the leaders want to hear you read for a little bit so that's a nice way that I think that's a nice uh little thing that we do that I would wholly recommend that you know people perhaps look at doing but I say beyond carry on with fluency starting to introduce a little bit more formalization of uh a comprehension test and say perhaps looking at something that you uh, standardised comprehension um, I, I don't think there's much more to it than that really
0: it's worth talking about you know what to avoid here as well which is the the tick box scenario of here are a list of su- success criteria that we've derived from the national curriculum key Stay like year five year six Tick, tick 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 this is a sheet that we've got for this kid and this kid and this kid that still happens there's no reason to do it what Neil says about SATs practice, I think it's finding the the right amount. It is possible to not practice SATs enough, which people might think that's a bit odd coming from me. But it's certainly the case that we don't want pupils going into these assessments cold, feeling like they're caught off guard, that they've no idea what they're doing. And um, that wouldn't be fair to them as much as anything else. I, I think that with regards to assessment, we need to think about, uh, it goes without saying that there are things that we need to do with regards to asking a senko for support with things relating to reading. So as ever, as we move further up the school, what we ask, the, quest- the kinds of questions we ask those SENCOs might be slightly different. And the very final thing I'll say is just something that Neil mentioned there reminded me of something I wanted to say on the previous question, which is that one thing that might change in our teaching of reading as well is that as we move through the school, we might start to introduce a little responding to text in writing because that can be a valuable thing to do as long as it doesn't begin to dominate those reading lessons.
1: I think people are going to find that really useful. Hopefully, you know, it feels like there's a clearer answer for what should happen in the case of reading than there was with maths. I think Neil and I had lots of, you know, this would be lovely, but it feels like the teaching of maths isn't going to be as affected as the teaching of reading so hopefully that's both useful and interesting for listeners all that's have to do is say thank you very much for joining me thank you very much neil thank you very much thank you very much chris thank you and everyone at home until next time thanks for listening